Once again, good morning, church family. My name is Cameron DeVacher. I'm the director for Sabbath School and Personal Ministries here in the Michigan Conference, and I'm so delighted to be here at U Church on this beautiful Sabbath day. Thank you so much for your hospitality, for your warm welcome. I appreciated your Sabbath School program. I'm sure all of you who attended appreciated your Sabbath School program. For those of you who didn't attend Sabbath School, you missed out. Shame. No, I'm not ready to that. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. Now, I wanted to draw your attention to the bulletin, and I noticed that there was a glaring omission that I would like to correct at this time. So if you have a pen with you, I would invite you to take that out, and on your bulletin, in any place you prefer, any place that you're going to look at later on, please write down the date November 8 through 10, for that is our upcoming Personal Ministries Weekend at Campus Abel. Now, I understand that every one of us wants to see the work of the Lord finished. Yes, Amen. And every one of us wants to not just be a witness to, but a worker in the cause of God. And that's exactly why we have Personal Ministries Weekends. And we're going to be talking about how to effectively follow up with someone who shows an interest in Bible study or spiritual things or has maybe come to a recent set of meetings, you know, if you had held some you know, evangelistic meetings. What do you do with the people that you interact with and how can you help lead them to Christ? That is the topic and theme and we have some fantastic speakers who are going to be there. Wonderful practical stuff, November 8 through 10. Now the reason it wasn't on your bulletin, maybe there was no uh, message sent out in a timely manner or maybe you as a church have already committed to taking the entire church family to Campus Abel that weekend, and for that I affirm you in advance. If, however, that is not the case, if you individually will be going, you can go and register at this website, michigansspm.org. Sabbath School Personal Ministries, SSPM, michigansspm.org. Now, with those housekeeping things taken care of, it is my joy to be able to visit with you this Sabbath morning and to present a message from God's Word. I have been um, blessed with the opportunity to visit churches around the great state and conference of Michigan over the last year or so. And it's a wonderful thing to be part of the body of Christ, is it not? Amen. And one of the one of the things I've had a conviction of recently is that I firmly believe that we need more messages that are simple, that are clear, and that are intensely practical. You can't leave saying, I, I, I heard some good words, but I don't know what was actually said. I don't want there to be any equivocation, any ambiguity, any obscurity, any kind of like fogginess as we leave this place, what our message is about today. The title is Show Up. And that's titled with an exclamation point, Show Up. Let me tell you, this is not symbolic language. This is not coded discourse. There's no hidden meaning. There's no original language to have to uncover. I mean, in plain English, the message today is about showing up. And since you're already here, you can breathe easy that I'm not today talking about you. Now, the irony of preaching a sermon about attendance is the people who didn't attend are the ones who need to hear it. So you will have the double burden, well, you have the blessing of receiving the Word of God this morning, and then the opportunity, the responsibility to share with those who might also need to hear it. But our message today is entitled, Show Up, and it means exactly that. But before we do any study from God's Word, let's begin with a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for yet another day of life at all, but particularly a Sabbath day where we can rest and worship and fellowship and be active in your work and your cause in this world. Please now, Lord, bless our few moments together this morning as we study directly from the word, and I would ask that you would fulfill in our presence today the promise you gave to lead us into all truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we ask and we expect these things, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please go with me to a passage I'm certain you are familiar with, and that is Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 8. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. Now the reason I know you're familiar with this passage is because today is the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and you are in the house of God worshiping this morning. You would not be here if it were not for these passages in Scripture. Okay? Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 from the Decalogue, the Law of God, the Ten Commandments, we find that fourth commandment, again, that we're all familiar with. Starting with verse 8, the commandment says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it how? Holy. Then it tells us in what manner we're to keep it holy. How we'll go about doing that. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now we just finished a series of meetings in, a, a, in the Grand Ledge Church where I was presenting the meetings and we like to highlight in the Sabbath commandment. Notice it doesn't say remember a Sabbath day, it remember the Sabbath day, the definite article. In the same way there is a the Lord your God, there is the Sabbath day. He makes that clear. He goes on to explain, in it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, I mentioned preaching meetings. We presented this Sabbath day truth, and praise the Lord, there are people who are not only convinced that it's true, but convicted that it applies to them, and by God's grace are converted to being Sabbath keepers themselves. And this has happened over the years. In fact, if I were to ask for a show of hands in this room, which I'm not, but I'm assuming that some of you didn't grow up keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath, but discovered it in the Word of God and applied it to your lives and are now faithful Sabbath keepers. Amen. Now, one thing that typically comes up when people understand this Sabbath truth, they say, yes, I see when it is, the seventh day, and I see that it's a day of rest and not to do work, so I know what not to do on the Sabbath. But sometimes I've had people challenge me, now wait a minute, where in this commandment do you see anything that tells you you need to go to church on Sabbath? And I hear sometimes people say things like, well, you know, I get just as much Sabbath blessing when I'm out in the woods or by the lake or maybe with my family at the, some other place or, or, or you know what? With our 21st century modern technological age in which we live, I can get a Sabbath blessing in my own home or wherever I have an internet connection or a television. I can, my favorite media ministry preaches to me. I get my Sabbath blessing at home. 
or loan. Well, to that, I would like you to go now to the right in your Bible, one book of the Bible over to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And I want to highlight something else. Now, if the only thing we knew about the seventh-day Sabbath was the commandment itself, there would be a legitimate concern about do we have to assemble together and come together as a you know, community of faith, a church family, on the seventh-day Sabbath. However, just like it does with every other topic in the Bible, the Bible doesn't just give us one passage that we build a life on. We have multiple passages. We have the entire canon of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation to give us instruction about how to apply these great biblical principles. And let me show you a passage here in Leviticus chapter 23. It says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And as you're probably familiar, the Israelites, the ancient Hebrews, were told to gather together at specific points throughout the year, and those were called the feasts of the Lord. Okay? And they were all, however, modeled after the great original feast of the Lord, which is the seventh-day Sabbath. Look at verse 2. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. And then it adds, comma, a holy, what's the word again? Convocation. Someone tell me, and this isn't rhetorical, I mean literally open your mouth and say something. What is a synonym for convocation? A gathering together, right? An assembling of people, a coming together of God's people. He says it's a Sabbath of holy rest, comma, a holy convocation. That our rest from our other things brings us into communion with not only God individually, but the body of God, which is the church. Yes? Okay. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So yes, there, let me just pause right here. There are legitimate times when you can and even should skip church. If, for example, you have a communicable disease, please stay away. If you are so geographically isolated that it wouldn't just be inconvenient, it would be literally impossible because you're the only believer, you have a valid excuse. However, short of such circumstances, which I ho hope we all regard as exceptions and not the rule, the common practice God expects of his people is that they will gather together on the Sabbath as a holy convocation. Now, let's go to the New Testament. And as we go there, let me remind you, as you're maybe thinking already, well, wait a minute, are you advocating feast keeping as well? Because those other feasts are required. Let's be clear, because I know there is every strain of wind of doctrine blowing in our church today, so let me clarify. There are absolutely things that we no longer are bound to from the Old Testament law. Circumcision, to list off one very famous one from Acts chapter 15, and the feasts of the Lord, all of which were shadows of the fulfillment that Christ would have. But let me ask you something. Was the seventh-day Sabbath part of that 
ceremonial law that the Lord added because of our sin, or was it part of God's great original ideal from the Garden of Eden? Of course, it was part of the original ideal. And the commandment says so itself. It gives the root of that commandment to remember the Sabbath day all the way back four in six days God created. God made the heavens, the earth, the sea. So we find our Sabbath keeping is a memorial, first of all, to creation and secondarily to the plan of redemption. Okay? But it's part of God's great ideal for our lives. Now, Jesus himself exemplified this. I want to take you to a passage in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he had just returned from successful hand-to-hand -hand combat, spiritual combat with Satan in the wilderness of temptation. He had refuted all the temptations of the evil one with the phrase, it is what? Written. Christ clearly built his ministry on the word of God and then applied it in his life. And he would say in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets, but have come to do what? Fulfill them, right? So when we look at the life of Christ, he's a living, breathing example of how to keep the law of God. Amen? So when we look at Jesus' life, we see how we should live. Which brings us to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 says here in verse 16, So he returned, I'm sorry, so he came to Nazareth. And look at this little phrase that's added here. I love how Luke authors this. So he came to Nazareth where he had been, what's the phrase? Brought up. Please notice it does not more mildly say his hometown or where he was from. It says something, it tells us something about a life experience that he went through there. It says where he had been brought up. By the way, notice that the bringing up was something that occurred to him that implies by other people. Who are the other people that this implies? Who are the bringing up, the upbringers of Jesus? Mary and Joseph, his parents, yes? So this is a, a good, strong nod to the parental guidance given by his earthly parents to Jesus in his adolescence and childhood, right? So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and immediately in the context of his upbringing, it says, and as his custom was. Okay? Now, pause right here. Before we go in to see what that custom is, which you already know what the custom is, but before we look at it in Scripture, do you notice the interesting juxtaposition between Jesus' upbringing in his youth and now in his adult life, his custom and practice? Where do you think Jesus came up with the custom that we're about to read? It came from his upbringing, which had occurred there in Nazareth by his parents. So we look at this and we see again in verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Mm. Something else you may just kind of breeze by there, but look at the passage again. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. What was Christ's custom when it came to the Sabbath day? Obviously, he would observe the Sabbath day. He remembered the Sabbath day, but how did he keep it holy? He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and the text tells us that's because that's what his custom was. This wasn't a special occasion. This wasn't offhanded. This was his regular practice. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, 
But look at the text. What else does he do on the Sabbath day? Stood up to read. Friends, Jesus Christ was not merely an attendee of his local church. He was a participant, an active member of his local church. That's how he, the Lord of the Sabbath, modeled Sabbath keeping. Fascinating. Where he had been brought up. Now, Obviously, this is, as we've mentioned before, a strong inference of support for the upbringing that Mary and Joseph provided in Jesus' childhood. But drawing this out, I want to give your attention here to a passage from the Spirit of Prophecy. You can find this in Child Guidance, page 530. What lessons can we as parents draw from such passages? It says here, Fathers and mothers should make it a rule. Oof. I know that's incendiary language in this day and age, that parents should have rules. But we're told fathers and mothers should make it a rule that their children attend public worship on the Sabbath and should enforce the rule. Now listen carefully. By their own example. Friends, Sabbath school and church is not a daycare center where you drop off your children and you come back and pick them up hoping they got some Jesus that morning. How did Mary and Joseph model and enforce the rule in their household? They exemplified it. She goes on to explain, it is our duty to command our children and our household after us as did Abraham. By example as well as precept, we should impress upon them the importance of religious teaching. All who have taken up the baptismal vow, taken the baptismal vow, have solemnly consecrated themselves to the service of God. They are under covenant obligation to place themselves and their children where they maintain, where they may obtain all possible incentives and encouragement in the Christian life. Covenant obligation. Listen to the rule, duty, covenant obligation it's a big words another thing I'd like to point out about Jesus example of Sabbath participation he stands up to read of course he's handed the scroll it's from what we now know today is Isaiah chapter 61 a prophetic a messianic passage about his own ministry which after reading it, it says in verse 20, then he closed the book and gave it back to the tenant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. Essentially, he took the scripture reading for the day, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, sat it down and said, this means me. Think that got their attention? Sure enough, did. It says here, verse 22, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So far, so good. Next sentence. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? 
they still view him as that young one who came up under his parents' tutelage and now he just comes to church. They've seen him here before. But now all of a sudden, 30 years of age, which I have to imagine he looks a little bit different after that 40 days of wilderness that he had to endure. He comes back in quoting scripture and saying, this is me. Not to get too far down into this, but they didn't receive that message well. In fact, that's an understatement. Look at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Now, wrath is a strong word. It'd be nice if it said joy, but they weren't filled with joy. And they weren't even ambivalent or disinterested. They were angry. They were filled with wrath. I mean, wrath is the same word that's used for, you know, the dragon chasing the woman, the church, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, his hatred of the church and the remnant of her... Same word. Look how they express this wrath, verse 29. And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Now, I have heard rumor of inhospitable church families, unwelcoming, cold, mean, looking down on young people or whatever, you know, all the urban legends about how awful the church, but I have never heard in all the woe and pity stories I've ever heard anyone talk about, I went to visit a church, I was reading scripture, they didn't like what I said, so they dragged me out to the parking lot and tried to execute me. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. I say all that to bring this point out. If there was anyone who ever had a valid excuse to say that church is too mean, or that church is too cold, or that church is too whatever, it would be Jesus. But you know where Jesus was the next Sabbath? In the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Why? because it was his custom. Jesus did not attend and participate in the local church because it was warm and fuzzy, though we should be warm, and I suppose fuzzy, whatever that exactly means. We should be gracious, hospitable, generous, kind, sweet, caring, loving, every positive word you can think. There should be a very atmosphere of heaven in our congregations, but if there is not, you still go. All right, one amen. We're getting there. Thank you for being a leader. Mm -mm -mm. Let's go farther into the New Testament. Keep going to the right. Go to the book of Acts this time. Acts chapter 2. Look at the experience of the New Testament believers, the early church. Right out of the gate, right there from the day of Pentecost. Boy, I tell you something. We don't have time to get into it today, but I would love to go through this entire book of Acts, but especially this passage here, this chapter about Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, because it is my conviction that the Seventh-day Adventist church needs to be more Pentecostal. And by that I mean, 
Because I know what happened. We say that term, it's loaded with imagery, right? It's loaded with previous experience and things we might have witnessed or understood, our friends, whatever. And the picture you probably have in your head is a very ecstatic, demonstrative worship style and maybe some faith healings and loud music and, and is speaking in unintelligible tongues, all of these kind of things, right? But when you go and look at Acts chapter 2, you, for instance, there is no mention of music at all in Acts chapter 2. Now, that's not to say that music is inherently evil or anything like that, but clearly it was not the cornerstone that made the day of Pentecost the day of Pentecost. It didn't even make, they maybe sung a hymn or something, I don't know, but it didn't make the scripture record. How about faith healings? How many of those are in the day of Pentecost? None. Zero. Now, there's nothing wrong with the genuine gift of healing if God chooses to bestow it, but it wasn't the thing that made the people stir their hearts, right? How about speaking in unintelligible tongues? No. There was speaking in tongues, but the Bible goes out of its way to make sure the thing that got people's attention was the fact that they could understand, not that they couldn't. What made the day of Pentecost powerful was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of a Bible-based, Christ-centered, prophecy-founded message of present truth. He was preaching Jesus alive in the heavenly sanctuary. Preaching present truth. And notice what happens there in verse 36. You've got to remember, by the way, Pentecost means 50 days. So this is 50 days after the Passover where Jesus didn't just typify the lamb. He was the lamb. He became the lamb. He was slain as that lamb by these people. Now, 50 days later, just over a month later, maybe less than a little, two months later, look at it says here, verse 36. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. By the way, they knew assuredly because he presented it from the Bible. Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, comma, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now that is an arresting message. Friends, the Messiah has come. Amen. And you killed him a month and a half ago. And now he's in heaven at the right hand of God with your life in his hands. No wonder the question, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the, Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now skip over to verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Notice it's an understanding and an application of the word of God. Brings you connection with him. You want to follow Jesus and you indicate that by baptism. Right? So there's preparation of understanding and applying God's word. Then the commitment of baptism. And then what happens? Gladly received his word and were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to whom? Notice it does not say they were added to him, capital H-I-M. Now, were they, were they brought into harmony with Jesus? Were they connected to Jesus? Of course. But let me ask you specifically, what part of Jesus were they connected to? To his body. The church, you know, there's a lot of people who say, I want to get baptized, but not into a church. I don't like organized, I just want to be baptized in the head, which is Jesus. And I understand that, desire, especially if you've seen abuses of organized religion. 
By the way, I think that most people have not seen organized religion. They've seen a, a caricature of organized religion, but they haven't seen godly, true faithfulness, a community of believers that is the body of Christ. No wonder they have a bad taste in their mouth for organized religion, but what happens then is you want to be part of the head, but not part of the body. You want to separate the head from the body. That is not a pretty picture. So when these people came to Jesus, they came into his body, right? They were added to them. In fact, look what it says there. Well, let's go down to verse 46, okay? This beautiful, well, I can't do this. Go to verse 42. We've got to back up a little bit. The immediately after they were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. None of this once learned, always learned business. Sometimes Seventh-day Adventists get into. I came to the church in 84. I haven't opened a book since. That is not the way it's supposed to be. They continued in it, right? Steadfastly in the apostle doctrine and in fellowship. So it wasn't just a high day and they said, oh, the praise the Lord, I got my Jesus, I'm going to go home. No, no, no. They came back. They studied together. They fellowshiped together. In the breaking of bread, they ate together. And in prayers, they prayed together. Now skipping down to verse 46. Notice how often they prayed together. So continuing, what's the word in your Bible? Daily with one accord. Where? In the temple. I thought you only go to the temple once a week. Is it possible that in the early church, believers were communing together in the temple and from house to house? Daily and not just weekly? Is it possible, friends, that there's more to church life than just attending the Sabbath worship service? Mm. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added, here it is again, to the church, those who were being saved. These early believers studied together, they ate together, they prayed together, they ministered to members' needs together. And more than just going to church on the Sabbath, believers could be found at the temple and each other's homes throughout the week. And the result was a growing church. The point I want to highlight today is that worship, study, fellowship, evangelism, an ongoing prayer for and with each other is not merely critical to your own spiritual life, but more importantly, to the life of your brothers and sisters to whom we are bound by the strongest ties, that is, fellowship with the head who is Jesus Christ. I also like being a guest preacher every now and then because I can preach really strong things and leave. Gives me a certain amount of freedom. I like it. And from the personal ministry's perspective, because you know, the job that I hold in the department that we run there, my associate Mark Howard and myself with the Emanuel Institute and Sabbath School and personal ministry, Sabbath School and personal ministries are the two elements of the local church that are primarily, if not exclusively, lay run. They're run by members. Volunteers in the local church who just attend and participate. But 
that's going to become an important point here in just a few minutes. But one of the things you can do, because people sometimes say, how can we get more people involved with church? How can we do this? How can we grow the church? How can we? And there's a lot of good ideas out there, but I'm going to share with you today the most fundamental, the most basic thing you can do as an individual member to start changing the culture if you have a cold or backslidden or kind of just nominal church experience, either personally or collectively. The number one thing you can do to change the course of your local church. And that is, as the title implies, or overtly asserts, show up. Show up to everything. Just be there. And here's why. Attendance demonstrates what you value. Sometimes it's called voting with your feet, right? Attendance demonstrates what you value, what is important to you, what you do just because you want to do it. Let's put it outside of the church realm. Let's put it in other relationships, like, say, a romantic relationship. If you're interested in someone for more than platonic ends, you naturally look for ways to hang out more than you normally would with other people. You don't have to like have a three-step process for how, no, 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 no. You just inherently, it just comes out of you. You kind of sniff it out in the air. Where are they? You kind of keep an aside glance. You just kind of, you have a radar for them, right? You know when they're in the room. They know where in the room you are. You know, you know all that stuff. And once you have that little spark of a connection there, you want to see it grow. And as you pour more interest and time into being with this person, your grades might suffer. I think all the students are gone, so anyway, their grades might suffer, but they don't care. They found something more important, okay? That time with your family, oh, that's gonna go. And guys, if you're, your guy friends are gonna fall away. And you don't care, they were smelly anyway. But you automatically reprioritize based on your personal interests. You don't have to go to a seminar, how do I make this person number one? You just do it. It just comes out of you, right? And when people, by the way, you also don't have to do, I don't know where we came up with this idea, we had to like post our relationships on social media. As if people didn't already know. <laughs> I'd like to officially announce that we're together. We've been seeing it for six months. And you know how it, it travels, you know? Oh, did you, did you see? Oh, did you, oh, look at that. Oh, and, and the phrase I always used, like, oh, oh, look at that. Oh, oh. Looks like they're getting pretty involved. No public declaration. No seminar course. Just everybody can spot it. And that is what we call getting involved. Now let's take it back to the church. If I were to ask people, not you people, because you're going to give all the right answers, but some other people, if you were involved in your local church, most, I fear, would say yes, and then tell me what office they hold. 
Yes, I'm involved. I'm a greeter. I'm a Sabbath school teacher. I'm a deacon. I am, you know what I'm saying, coordinator or department or some responsibility, right? But let me challenge you with an idea this morning. Involvement is not necessarily office holding. Let me put it this way. I have in my experience seen people, and perhaps you have too, who have a title, a position, a nominated officer list, or whatever the thing is, right? And they will show up every time it's their turn to do a thing. But that is not involvement. Let me take it back to the relationship realm. My beautiful wife is here today, and I'd say it even if she wasn't here. But let's say that I wanted to make sure she was aware of my affections, right? That she knew I was very, very happy with her. And I asked her, sweetheart, how can I let you know? How can I convey to you my love? And she would say, I don't, I don't know. I, it's a weird question. I, it, I just, no, 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 you have to tell me. How can I demonstrate it? How can I show you? How can I let you know? And she would say, oh, look, I don't know. I, you could probably just say it. That would help. <laughs> And I said, fine, okay, but, but that's not good enough. How, how much do I need to say it? She's like, what? And I said, seriously, how often? She's like, I mean, probably every day would be good. I said, no, no, that's not enough, not enough. Okay, I need to say it every day, but how often each day? And she's like, this is the most ridiculous conversation. I'm like, hear me out, just finish, tell me how many times. She's like, I don't know, five. I said, fine, got it. And we shake on it. Next morning, tap her on the shoulder. Uh, not on the door, on the shoulder, that's not right. Sweetheart, wake up. She's all great, yeah, what is it? She, and I just look her right in the eye and I'm like, I love you, 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 done. Obviously, it's a laughable scenario, right? It's absurd. I fulfilled every, every contract detail that she set up. Yet it didn't show that I loved her. In fact, it would actually reveal some, let's say, disdain or distance just doing the minimum because I have to does not demonstrate genuine involvement. Genuine involvement, whether it's in your personal life relationships or your church family relationships, is seen just by being around when stuff happens. That's involvement. We have all these things. We, and I love the General Conference Initiative. Total member involvement. And we think, oh, I'm going to do a specific task. I'm going to hold this one office. I'm gonna... No, 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 no. The number one, the most basic, fundamental, elemental way that you can demonstrate your love and interest and involvement in the local church is just by showing up whenever stuff happens. The ministry of attendance. Which brings us to our passage in Hebrews as we continue our journey right in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen first to the individual mandate, 
And then the corporate responsibility the Apostle Paul lays out. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 23. Here we're told in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Right? So hold on to that hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Then it says, and. The conjunction and means also, in addition, Beyond that one thing we just said, here's another thing to add to it. Does that make sense? So you hold on fast to your profession, right? God is faithful. And let us consider whom? One another. Pause right there. Time out. Give me a synonym for consider. Think about. Ponder. Ruminate. Mull over. Cogitate, right? Wrestle with it. Think about it. Consider one another. For what purpose? In order to what? Stir up two things. Love and good works. Okay, so he's telling us, think about other people in order to stir up love and good works. Which brings me to my favorite analogy of all time. That is peanut butter. How, no, I'm not going to ask it. Everybody likes peanut butter. Unless you're allergic to it, and it might even be worth the risk. You don't like peanut butter? Oh. We need a special prayer session after our service today. <laughs> Something is wrong, brother. Oh, I've never met one before. I'm, I'm awkward in your presence now. I don't know what to think. <laughs> but pretend for a moment that that vile substance is very drawing for you, okay? You like it. And all the rest of you just act naturally because you already love it. Now, it used to be there was just a couple of brands or something of peanut butter, but now they have these mega stores. You have like an entire peanut butter aisle, right? And they are all different sizes and shapes and decorations and colors and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's just a whole aisle full of clear containers with peanut butter, right? And there's only two real types of peanut butter, and I don't mean crunchy and creamy. Because we all know creamy is not really peanut butter. It's got to be crunchy. <laughs> I know. There's only two types of peanut butter. There's the healthy kind, and then there's, well, everything else. right? And you could name off all the time. Right? But if they were to take every label off of those containers, off those jars, or whatever, could you spot the healthy from the unhealthy? Absolutely you can. How? It separates, right? You have those two parts, the two components, the two elements. You have that big chunk at the bottom, that paste, right? And on the top, you have that layer of what? Oil. Now, let's say you get home, make some nice homemade bread. My wife made some bread the other night. Oh, so good. And we put it in the toaster oven. Oh, it's just so nice. And you put, take something that, and you've got a nice hearty piece of bread, and then you take a spoon and ladle some of that oil right on the bread. How's that going to work? Oh, oh, now I'm with you. Oh, no good. Let's say, oh, that's offensive, that's gross, get that out of it. And you pour the oil down the sink, and you just take some of the paste and put it on the, how's that going to work? Oh, no, it's concrete, it's terrible, right? So what do you have to do to make your peanut butter good? You have to stir it up, all right? Let's continue down the analogy path. When you first begin stirring it up, you take that knife or that big spoon or whatever, is it easy? No. 
it, it basically is your morning workout, right? You can really have to lean into it, really get some force and leverage, right? But something amazing happens. As the oil starts to mix with the pace, it starts to ease up and move a little bit more freely. And all of a sudden, it's got a flow to it. And it just comes to life. And you put it together. Oh, it's magic. Right? This is the analogy the Apostle Paul uses for showing up at your local church. He says you have to stir up love and good works. The implication of that statement is that everyone, every church family has in it, if it's got any connection with Christ, some perhaps latent and dormant, but there are love and good works that are waiting to be brought out. But how do you manifest them? How do you bring it to the surface? You've got to stir it up. So yes, you should have your faithful profession because God is faithful to you, so you be faithful to him as an individual. But he says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And how do you do the stirring? Look at the passage as it continues. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25, here's how. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So if you're not forsaking, then you are assembling yourselves together, correct? This is how you stir the peanut butter of your local church. You show up. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now look at this. As is the manner or the custom habit of some. Let me tell you a couple of lessons I take away from that little phrase. First of all, as a local church pastor, I took great solace in that term. This is the Apostle Paul writing. In the early church, you had the odds of, if you went to church that week, you might see Paul or Peter or John. or you know, And people were still skipping church. We always talk about the millennials and this generation of kids or the X generation or Y generation or generation or zillennials. I think that's Xennials or whatever. I think I'm one of those. I don't care. But we always, whoever the newest kids are, we throw them under the bus and be like, kids these days. You know, they've been saying that for every generation of kids, right? And who Paul was writing here to the first millennials. 2,000 years ago, same problem, because it's not a generational issue, it's a human nature issue. All of us have the proclivity towards selfishness, from isolation, toward, you know, laziness or just separation. And it can become a habit. He says you got to think about other people and purposely stir up love and good works by showing up to everything that happens. And he goes on to conclude by saying, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see what happening. The day, capital D, approaching. What is that day that's approaching? The return of Jesus, is it not? Is there a body of believers that makes prominent our faith and hope in the soon coming of Jesus Christ? Yes, it's the Adventists. <laughs> this text applies most directly to the believers in the last day who were living just before the coming of Jesus. That is, to us. And apparently it can be a custom or a habit not 
to participate and attend and stir up love and good works. And he says, you be cognizant, you be conscious, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Even if you're not holding an upfront role, you don't have a responsibility or an office or scheduled duty or something like that, just being in, the, imagine the exact event that we're in right now, the same location, the same temperature, the same smell, the same everything, the same preacher, the same message. But only three of you are here today. Would that change the dynamic in the room? Yes, it would. Let me tell you what. Next time you throw a church social and you plan on having 100 people but only three come out, what happens? It sucks the life out of the room, right? Same games might be planned, the same worship thought might be had, the same songs might be sung, but it's different when there's nobody there for it, right? Just being in the room changes the event. You don't have to have a job. You don't have to have a role or responsibility. You didn't have to bring the dish. You just had to be there for it. And it makes it better by your... This is why we call it the ministry of attendance. Because it is a ministry to other people for you to be there. It is. I'll give you a prime example of this from about two weeks ago. I was preaching this campaign in Grand Ledge Church. Good people. Glad those people came out. The visitors and the members alike. But... On the Sabbath morning, there was a much larger turnout than there was in the midweek evening. And one of the guests, who by the way, every time, and has not failed, it's not to this local church, it's to every local church I've ever been in, the guests who are interested and the visitors who are learning something, they come faithfully. The people who have a hard time getting out to evangelistic meetings are the members. And he said, who are all those people here on Saturday morning? I said, well, they're the members of the church here. He's like, why aren't they here on Tuesday? I was like, that's a good point. <laughs> and well, some of them have work. And, and there are, I understand. But it got noticed. And I don't think my preaching was any worse. But it changed the experience of those people when other people didn't show up. Hmm. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The same Apostle Paul talks about this idea of the body of Christ and how everyone is necessary. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. He says, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, Verse 21, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now look at verse 22. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are what? Necessary. Now the, the body parts he lists off, like eyes and hands and feet, I mean we would all acknowledge, I mean those are pretty key elements of the body. But there's a lot of stuff that, that makes your body run that you don't ever see. You realize that, right? Most of what makes your body function is on the inside. I assume right now that my pancreas and my liver and my intestines and my cell walls and tissues and all that stuff is functioning well. Even though my mouth is talking, my eyes are looking, my hands are moving, that, that's actually a small part. The most functional stuff is the behind the scenes doesn't get recognized 
But boy, is it necessary. Same thing in the body of Christ. Don't think that, oh, when I get to be an elder, when I get to be, or I get to, or I can do this, then I can really have an, you have an influence now by just showing up or not. I should add, showing up on time is helpful too. Showing up prepared helps too. Probably add a lot of things to this message, but I'm just trying to get the show up part now, okay? But let's think it through. What things would be better if more people attended? And right here in your local church, at the U Church, what things would be better if more people attended? What otherwise mundane event or program might your mere presence make more exciting? Yes, sir. Now, I'm the Sabbath school in person. You know we're going to leave here without talking about Sabbath school. Well, obviously, the Sabbath morning worship service, Right? But that should be the bare minimum. I won't even start about how we've, and we've completely flipped around the expectation of church. You know, there is a, a very well-loved denomination, huge across the world, where the members are taught the way that you get salvation is by showing up to receive this sacrament from this individual. You don't have to understand the message. You don't have to just show up. And, and that, friends, there is an element of that coming into the Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, people don't come to prayer meeting, won't come to the Sabbath school program, won't even come on time to church, but they'll show up, and as long as they get a little piece of the sermon on their ear, I got my church. As though we're doling out grace. When the reality is there's an obligation for every member of the body to participate, to make the church the body of Christ, right? But since it was brought up, and I was going to bring it up anyway, Sabbath school. Typically, about half the number of attend Sabbath school as attend the worship service. That may be different here. I'm just saying across the board. <laughs> At the last church that I pastored, the last local congregation, it felt good to say that, because I think we had about 370, I think it was about 379 or so members on the books. And people would ask you, how large is that church down there? Oh, you know the temptation. About 400. But then I realized that's not fully legit. And honestly, that 379 is not like they're all in church each week. So we started counting people. Just the backs of their heads. We weren't getting too personal with the fronts, but just the backs. Though I think we should count. Well, we'll come to that some other time. And round out the actual number of our average attendance on a worship service is 160 out of 379. I said, how can I convey, how can I let people know where we are? So I decided to have it published in the bulletin each week. Last week's attendance. I mean, we do it for money. We count money to the penny. Yet people can go six months and we don't have it. Don't let me get started. Put it in the bullet. Then I said, you know what? We're still not finding that sweet spot of diagnostic yet. Let's start counting how many people come to Sabbath school. And found out that number was about 80, 90-ish. Okay, roughly half again. Put it in the bullet. 
So you could have you could have it like membership of this church is three seventy nine. Attendance last week was one sixty. Attendance of Sabbath school was this. And I said, you know what? We're not done with the cutting yet. Let's take weekly prayer meeting attendance. In that particular congregation, if I'm not mistaken, the number was thirteen. Let's publish it in the bulletin. Shortly thereafter, I was removed from that congregation. <laughs> I don't think those two things have any th correlation. I'm just... The point being, if someone were to ask me after I did all that diagnostic stuff, how big is your church? I wouldn't nearly come near that 400 mark or even the 300 mark. Or honestly, even the 200 mark. I also notice this trend, and maybe you're not doing it here, but we'll take, because people aren't attending, say, prayer meeting or the Sabbath school or the outreach or whatever the thing is, we take all the benefits that would have been found in those meetings and try to squeeze them into the worship service. So I've been places where they have like a 20-minute prayer time and sharing and garden of prayer and all this kind of thing, which is all fine, but you know there's a whole meeting each week called prayer meeting. And we'll take every special feature, every mission story, every, everything, put it in the worship service. Every announcement has to go in the worship service. Why? Because we know that if we said it at the beginning of Sabbath school, nobody's there to hear it. I think we need to change our posture on Sabbath school. I think we need to put the good stuff in Sabbath school, and if you missed it, you missed out. Again, we'll come back to that in a minute, but listen to this. From the pen of inspiration, Councils on Sabbath School Work, page 169. It is a sad failing with many that they are always behind time on Sabbath morning. They are very particular about their own time. They cannot afford to lose an hour of that. But the Lord's time, the only day out of the seven the Lord claims as his and requires us to devote to him, quite a portion of this is squandered away by sleeping late in the morning. In this they are robbing God. It causes them to be behind in everything. It makes confusion in the family and finally results in the tardiness of the entire family at Sabbath school and perhaps at meeting. Now, why can we not rise early with the birds and offer praise and thanksgiving to God? Try it. By the way, I think it's interesting. Robbing God and what's the solution? Try it. Isn't that exactly what Malachi said with tithes and offerings? It's a robbery of God, but test me now in this. Try me in this, right? So just give it an experiment. Try it out. Try it, brethren and sisters. Have your preparations all made the day before and come promptly to the Sabbath school and meeting and you will, be, you will thereby not only benefit others, but you will reap rich blessings for yourself. So yes, you're going to bless others, but you're going to get benefit for yourself. She writes something similar about prayer meeting. Listen to this. This is from Pastoral Ministry, page 183. A prayer meeting will always tell the true interest of the church members in spiritual and eternal things. The prayer meeting is as the pulse to the body. It denotes the true spiritual condition of the church. A lifeless, backslidden church has no relish for the prayer meetings. And there's other stuff that happens in the local church that needs your help. If you'd like to know what's going on in the church, go to a board meeting. I'm assuming they're open unless they go to executive session. Business meeting. You're not just welcome to go. You're expected to go. You're a voting delegate. <laughs> Go to the business meeting. Work bees, school events, church socials, outreach activities such as in-gathering, canvassing, evangelistic programs, you name it. 
No one ever says in their departmental review of their programming at the end of the year, no one ever looks back at the stuff they did and said, you know what, everything was really great, we just had too many people show up. If we, we, we should get a smaller room so we can hold fewer people. No one ever says that. Mm. And you hear t typical excuses. I, I, I know, I know I should, but I'm just too tired. This is where the, the visiting preacher thing is good. No, you're not. You just don't want to go. Let's just call it what it is. How can we evidence this? And no church has ever taken me up on this. Maybe it's good that they don't. But if at the opening bell of Sabbath school, whoever was there was just quietly handed a $100 bill with a little note, thank you for your good attendance. Nothing else was said. What do you think the attendance would be like the next Sabbath morning? Why? Same time, same place. Same vicissitudes and difficulties of life, the trials and tribulations that made you so exhausted the week before, now all of a sudden, we talk about this with soul winning too, we try to encourage people, devote two hours of your week, an hour of preparation and execution, coming back home, but to giving Bible studies. Find a Bible study interest and connect with them once a week for, you know, it'll take about two hours out of your life each week. And people are like, oh no, no, I'm way too busy, can't do it. But let me tell you something, if just down the street there was a palatial mansion and the people were very, very wealthy and they had these, they, 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 they had these, uh, they had this beautiful uh, uh, estate, but they had to be out of town each week and they were very uncomfortable. They didn't trust the security system. They wanted it house sat each week for that same two hour block of time. And they said, look, it's so valuable to us, we'll give you $500 an hour, that's $1,000 a week to sit in our home and make sure it doesn't get in trouble. Pipes don't break, the burglars don't break in, the lights work, everything's fine. Just house sit for two hours a week. We'll give you $1,000. You know what those same busy people would do? Just like Moses before the Red Sea, their Google Calendar would just open what? It's a miracle. No, it's not. It's not a miracle, it's a priority. Sabbath school here starts at 9.45. Most people go to work 6, 7 in the morning. You can already sleep in. Still be on time. With a dish for potluck. Don't even want to start. How about this one? Especially from young people. I mean, I'd go, but nobody's there. The correct response to that is, you're right. And you're one of them. Right? I was in youth ministry for way too many years, eight years in academy work, and I can't tell you how many times we'd have an event and young people would like poke in the door, look and see if there's another person their age, and walk out. Ten minutes later, a different young person popped their head, and they're each looking for the one young person who would actually sit down and start the, you know, the movement. If you would just show up and be there, you're the thing that will inspire someone else to show up and be there, right? Listen to this. Listen to the incredibly practical counsel from Pastoral Ministry, page 184, speaking about the local church events, right? She says, before leaving home, go to God in secret prayer. Plead with him for his blessing, and he who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. 
with your heart softened by the love of Jesus, go to the meeting feeling that you are personally responsible for its success. If but few attend, she does not say, no worries, you're off the hook. She said, if but few attend, you should feel under double responsibility. You are in the service of God and should do what you can with your talent, tact, and skill to make his worship interesting. You know, church is more interesting when people are there for it. Preachers preach better when there are people for it. The Sabbath school study is going to be better when more people are on time and prepared and contribute to the discussion. It's better. Now, let me close, because I'm going on a little too long, and I think you get the point. Say it again? Amen. Is that a hurry up or take your time? Okay. What a kind way to do that. That's, that's very nice. As I already mentioned, Sabbath School and Personal Ministries is the stuff that lay people are responsible for in the local church. And I know it can seem like a daunting task, especially if you don't have a position of responsibility or trust. You're not the pastor, you're not an associate, you're not a deacon or an elder, something like that, okay? And from our department, we want to put together as many resources as we can. Good websites, training events like the Personal Ministries Weekend, November 8 through 10, that you're all going to attend, and so on and so forth. But there's no manual we can write, there's no resource we can develop, there's no handbook that we can publish, no website that we can produce that's going to do a fraction for your local church that you can do just by showing up. Let me ask you a question Has our message today been clear? Yes. Praise the Lord. Are you going to commit? For God and these witnesses, that by His Spirit, not your own inclination, that you will think and consider others to stir up love and good works by not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, but much more as the day approaches. How many of you are going to show up to everything that happens in this church by God's grace? Praise the Lord. Fantastic. Do we have a song or do I pray now? Okay. Okay. Well, how about I pray after the song? Okay. And since we're on time, can we do one stanza of the song? Is that about right? Yeah, we can do one stanza. Amen. Here we go. Gotta get that nursing home in. Amen. They'll run. Our closing hymn is number 310, I Would Draw Nearer to Jesus. First verse only. <laughs>